Team 5, 419 and 95, we search for the truth, we seek justice, the courts require it, the victims cry for it, and God demands it. Hello, and welcome to the We Remember podcast, a companion podcast to News on 6 and News 9's special 25th anniversary coverage of the Oklahoma City bombing. We hope by this time you've had a chance to watch some of our stories that we've put together as a part of this 25th anniversary special, and you can check those out on our website, newson6.com, as well as our app. Joining me today is Tess Monty. Tess, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. So who did we just hear from? That was Rocky Yardley. He was a member of Team 5. He was a rescue worker from Edmond, and he's who wrote those words, those words on the side of the Oklahoma City National Memorial Museum. They've been there now for 25 years and still really just as powerful today as they were then, and I think truly speak to the hearts of Oklahomans and captured the moment of what was happening there in the midst of all of that destruction. He spray painted them on the wall um, about a week in after the bombing had happened, and uh, he says he was just at home one night on a real quick break, and those words just came to him. And one of his fellow team members, Rusty Pyle, who I also spoke with, he kind of talks about the moment that Rocky approached him with those words the day he wrote them. Rocky came up with a piece of paper in his hand and he said, I wrote this last night, it, it, it just came to me. And he said, I'm gonna go ask if I can paint this on the wall. And I said, man, that's fantastic, let's do it. Well, when he first showed me the paper, uh, it was like, wow, that's powerful. It's really powerful. So he went and got a can of spray paint, red paint that we had used to mark evidence, and started painting it on the wall. And we stood there next to him while he did it. What I think is really interesting about that is it was just such a moment in time for them, but it obviously had a huge impact because Rusty still remembers standing next to Rocky as he painted him, painted those words on the side of the wall. And he remembers Rocky bringing the piece of paper to him and showing him and says, wow, it's powerful. And it is. That message is powerful. And um, Rocky is quick to tell you those words are not his words. He says God spoke to him the night he wrote them and gives all the credit to God for those words. I wanted for our guys to, to know why we're here. Uh, and I, I didn't need to tell them why we were down here. Everybody knew why we were down here. That's, that's why we were down here. Um, but everybody saw it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when I, once I put it on there, it belongs to everybody. It, it's not mine. So it sounds like, Tess, Rocky and Rusty, you talked about this, they have memories. Mm-hmm. Like a steel trap from this day, nothing escapes them. Absolutely not. And I guess it's important to kind of talk about who Rocky and Rusty are Rocky, um, they were both members of Team 5. Team 5 was made up of emergency responders from all over the state and country. Team 5 had about 60 members on it, and they would come in and out. So so maybe on a Monday there would be 40, and then maybe some would leave and some would come in, and on Wednesday there would be 60 of them there. And they were the emergency responders. Rusty and Rocky, Team 5 specifically, Uh, was in charge of going through all of the evidence. And we're talking about everything from the crime scene, everything from the rider truck, all of the explosive material, 
and they would sift through that and they would haul all of the evidence in yellow five-gallon buckets, Rocky told me. And he said by the end of it, he, and still to this day, if he sees a five-gallon bucket, a yellow five-gallon bucket, he wants to just smash it because it brings back those tough memories from that time. When we first got out here, they said, we got to take everything out of this building uh, and sift it on site. I said, we're going to be here for years. And we did it in less than 30 days. It was absolutely incredible. A task that should have taken years. Team five, with between 40 and 60 of them, like you said, depending on the day, they did this in a month. In a month. And that their mission was to get the evidence that they needed. Number one mission was to get survivors out that first day. They only found survivors on day one. Mm. The next mission was to recover all of the bodies, bring everybody home. Third was to collect the evidence they needed to find and convict and prosecute the person or persons in this case who did it. Wednesday, April 19th, 1995. How did Rocky and Rusty find out? about the bombing? Where were they? What did they tell you about kind of their moment in time? Where were you when? Well, Rocky was a young Edmund crime scene investigator and bomb disposal technician. And Rusty, he was um, an Oklahoma City Police Department lieutenant with the bomb squad. And uh, Rocky was in Edmond at work. And Rusty was actually at home with his family south of Oklahoma City. Rocky heard the explosion in Edmond and felt the ground shake. Rusty felt the ground shake. That's how powerful it was. He was about 25 miles southwest of Oklahoma City and felt the ground shake, thought it was an earthquake. His 911 pager starts going off. Rusty's already on the way. Rocky heads to the Oklahoma City, downtown Oklahoma City. Both of them describe seeing smoke in the air, it was a huge plume of smoke that you could see in the heart of downtown Oklahoma City. What's interesting from Rusty's perspective is he came in from south Oklahoma City. So he saw the south side of the building, which appeared to be intact. And he describes what it was like coming into downtown Oklahoma City in that moment. I and I think three or four other bomb techs from Oklahoma City entered the building from the south side. As soon as we got into the building, we realized the whole north side of the building was gone, and most of the floors were actually gone. Uh, we could look straight up and, and, and see, see the sky. Uh, there were things still falling from inside the building. As a matter of fact, I had gotten probably maybe 10 or 15 feet inside the building, and as I was getting ready to take a step forward, one of the bomb techs behind me, and I don't remember which one it was, grabbed me from the back, pulled me, pulled me back, and about that time, a large piece of concrete, huge piece, fell right in front of us. And uh, if he hadn't have done that, I probably wouldn't be here today. So a true near-death experience from one of the members of Team 5. When you were doing this interview and doing this story test, did it strike you as it's kind of struck me that there could have been more than 168 people? Oh, lost their absolutely. Lives. And when he told me that story, it gave me chills. It gives me chills listening to him say it again. Me too. And it just goes to show how brave these men and women were who responded 
in the moments after the bombing. I mean, he went into that building, as so many other emergency responders did, with no idea what was on the other side. You know, one of these things that we're trying to do with these podcasts, and we hope our listeners are enjoying these and really getting a lot of of meaning out of them. But, you know, we only have three minutes to tell this story typically in television, right? Mm -hmm. Our time Mm -hmm. is always so valuable and so short in a newscast. Time is so valuable, right? One of the stories that I would love for you to share has to do with the survivor tree. It hits me because in, in this special that we talked about at the top of the podcast, my story was a survivor tree, the American elm that was in the parking lot 100 yards away from the Murrah building that still stands to this day and is an icon, a beacon of hope for survivors and their families. It survived. It is a living thing on the ground of the Murrah building, what used to be the Murrah building, that is alive mm-hmm. and thriving. It almost was cut down. Tell me about this story, Tess. I'm not sure that very many people even know this story. And it just so happened that I interviewed Rocky Yardley right there beneath the survivor tree. So tell people at home, again, who haven't been to the museum Mm -hmm. and the memorial, the Team 5 spray painting message Mm -hmm. and the survivor tree. How far apart are we talking about here? Between 25 and 50 yards, probably 50 yards I would right say next to each other. right next to each other. Um, the old journal rec- record building, which is now the museum, is where those words are. It overlooks the survivor tree, which overlooks the memorial grounds. And uh, Rocky said right after the, in the days that followed the bombing, um, there was metal twisted in the tree and debris in the tree. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I about did something really bad. In the days after the bombing, I had a chainsaw in the tree, in the survivor tree, and I was about to cut it down. And someone ran over to me and said, no, 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 you can't cut that down. You can't cut it down. That's going to be part of the memorial. And again, this is just, you know, in the days following the bombing. And he's like, memorial? What memorial? But that goes to show that someone was already thinking about the future of those grounds and saw that tree, and he doesn't know who it was who ran over to him and said that, but someone was thinking about the future and about the meaning of that tree in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this death and destruction. And it's just another shining example of, I think, Oklahomans and the wonderful spirit Oklahomans have to find something beautiful in all of that evil that was there. Well, and you said that so interestingly because I've talked with the Oklahoma Forestry Services guy, the man in charge, Mark Bays, who is essentially, he's in charge of getting the saplings to people, coordinating the whole sapling tree program where people can just, they they hand out saplings at the remembrance ceremony. Mm -hmm. So people can take a piece of the survivor tree, their saplings from the survivor tree. They can take a piece of that sapling home with them or to their organization and plant it. And you know... He doesn't even know how the tree got saved. He doesn't recall at all how it came to be that someone somewhere or a group of people decided we want to save the survivor tree because you mentioned it. It was in horrible shape. Mm -hmm. There was a car hood hanging in it. Things were on fire. Cars were on fire underneath Mm -hmm. it. It looked like something that could be cut down. 
Absolutely. And I honestly don't know how many people know that story that Rocky told me. It was just by happenstance. We were under the tree and he just kind of brought it up. Oh, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? That's so, so crazy. And that was a parking lot area there where the tree or near where the tree is. So you're talking about the cars and things like that. And Rocky and Rusty and the Team 5 tent was set up right by the tree. I mean, just pretty much right next to the tree. So they were passing by it every day. And um, once they had sifted through the evidence, it, it, some of the, the things in the tree would have been evidence for them. Yeah. So Absolutely. And, and we're talking very close. I mean, he had already started to cut through the tree. So, I mean, it had a notch in it from the chainsaw. So very, very close to to taking the tree down. And just, I just love the foresight from somebody who ran and stopped him. And I know he does too. I mean, seeing what it is now, he appreciates it and, and is just so proud that the tree is still standing. And, um, but just to think that it was that close to coming down. Tell me a little bit how you track down Rocky and Rusty because when we were talking in kind of what we call in the, in the news business, the, the pitch meeting, we wanted to talk to Team 5, and I don't know you know, how the idea exactly came up. We wanted to talk to Team 5, but there are so many of them. Mm-hmm. How did you find Rocky and Rusty? Were you hoping to get 10 people, 20 people? Kind of what was your idea, and kind of how did this all come about from a journalistic perspective? So I was able to track down who wrote it through the Oklahoma City Memorial Museum. And then I went to Facebook, and I found Rocky, found we had some mutual friends, had a friend get me the phone number I called Rocky he didn't know who I was he lives in Edmond and um, was a little bit nervous about asking him because I know for some people talking about the bombing can be very hard especially those first responders who were there on the scene who were recovering uh, victims and bodies of those who didn't survive and so um, I was just pleasantly surprised when I asked him and he said sure I'd love to when do you want to do it I'm free pretty much any time. And I, so we started setting up the time and I, I told him I would love to talk to as many team five members as he could track down. And, um, you know, we only had a couple of weeks in planning, so he was able to get Rusty to come on down, but we're talking about 60 people from all over the country. Rocky and Rusty don't even know the names of all of team five because they were from just so many places. And at that time, we didn't have social media or anything, so they're not following each other on Facebook as they say their goodbyes. Um, So I was happy to get two of them and to hear their perspectives from what had happened. Um, But I had opened it up to have as many or as few as possible. It, it, It could go either way, but the way Rusty and Rocky shared the story and their memories, which are so vivid, I mean, they tell the stories like it happened yesterday. And both of them said when they're back on the memorial grounds, it feels like yesterday. And they feel like they can stand there and they can still see the Murrah building. They see it before the bombing and they see it like they did when they were there for those 30 days working the scene. How does it feel for you personally, 25 years on, you're from Oklahoma, you were raised here, living here at the time. How does it feel for you? What do you remember about that day? I remember the day, too, just like yesterday, really. I was 10 years old. I was in fourth grade, Mrs. Jackson's class at Hillcrest Elementary in El Reno, and that's about 25 miles west of 
Oklahoma City, uh, west of where the bombing happened. And um, the way we kind of found out was we saw our school secretary wheeling a TV that back in the day when you had the big carts and the big TVs on the yeah. carts. So she was wheeling it into her office to watch the coverage. And that's how we found out about it. Uh, I had a classmate who was in the hall and she was crying because she thought her grandparents were in the building that day. They were supposed to be down in Oklahoma City. They were supposed to be there. Um, it turned out they weren't, which was great for her. They were raising her. So, um, But that image is what sticks out in my mind as far as that day goes. And then once I got home, started watching the news coverage, um, not probably a lot of 10-year-olds were watching the news like I was mm. nonstop from the time I got home until the time I went to bed. And um, it was in those days that I decided I wanted to be a journalist myself because I was, that was the only way you could get news from what was happening. And I saw the importance of what those reporters on the scene were doing in relaying that information. The only way we could get that information was from them. And they all just did such a standout job in being respectful and keeping their composure on what is probably the toughest assignment any of them have ever been assigned to, or many of them anyway. Um, so those are kind of my memories. I um, Now, and I don't know if you would be comfortable sharing this, but we had talked about you had been to the scene. Someone took you to the scene very soon after an experience that very few Americans living today can say that I was there mm -hmm. right after. Yeah. About two weeks afterward, um, my best friend's dad took my best friend and me down downtown Oklahoma City. He understood the historic aspect of what had happened. And he thought it was important for us to go down there and to witness a horrible tragedy to see the evil, but then see the just unwavering support and strength of Oklahomans in that time. And we held hands, Nikki, that was my best friend, is my best friend's name, Nikki. We were holding hands, walking through a crowd of people. They had it fenced off. And uh, we were, I wouldn't have known this at the time, but we were on the east side of the building walking through a crowd of people, seeing all of the new satellite trucks that were still there because they went wall to wall for weeks and weeks, um, holding hands, walking through, and then just seeing the building and knowing there were still bodies in the building and seeing desks just up on, you know, the sixth floor of a building that does no n no longer has a face and thinking somebody was sitting there working they were on their phone and this happened and they had no idea that this would be their last day on earth and what made it even more impactful i think for me is that there was a woman from el reno who was killed in the bombing and she lived two blocks away from me her name was virginia thompson so when we went there that day with my friend's dad, her body was still in the building. So at 10 years old, I'm thinking about that. That's heavy. And it's hard to comprehend and it's hard to understand. It was hard for an adult to understand that. 
and Virginia Thompson's body was the last one recovered from the building after it was imploded. Mm. We've talked about the the evil nature of what was done. And in this podcast, you're going to hear that a lot. And mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of heavy moments like you just heard. But I want to end it by, after talking with Rocky and Rusty, do you have hope that there are a lot of good people and good Oklahomans out there who turned this into something positive? I don't, I don't even really know how to phrase it. Well, when you look at it, you've got two people who are the face of evil in this. And you have countless Oklahomans and Americans who came together to make our state and our people stronger. And I have said all along, while yes, the the bombing, it changed all Oklahomans. The day it happened, April 19th, 1995, we were never the same after that. But my, my, I will forever say I am a prouder Oklahoman because of what I saw happen in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing. Tess, thank you so much for talking with us today and the We Remember podcast. And we hope at home that you will listen to all of these podcasts. We're posting a series of them from either people who were there or who are sharing their stories as a part of a 25th anniversary special that the Griffin Communications family of stations are putting on to remember those who were lost and those who are surviving uh, to this day. We hope that you also rate us and review us on Spotify and Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.